her faith today, but we are going to be focusing primarily not on the faith of this woman, although that is important. We're going to be looking at the reaction and the action of our, of our blessed Savior in this passage. And so as we read, remind yourself that this is an infallible description of Jesus Christ and His life while He was on earth. Verse 21, this is God's Word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, the Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to texts like this, and as we come every week, Lord... um, Who's sufficient for these things? Uh, These texts that reveal such wonderful things about You and Your Word and faith. uh, Eternal things. And God, I, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would go and do far above all that I have written, all my hopes for our congregation. I pray that You would help us to understand this Word and more than that, that we'd hide it in our hearts. That it might preserve us in times of trial and temptation, when You seem silent to us, Lord, that we would know Your character. When You seem to even treat us harshly in our perception, that we would know Your steadfast love. Um, God, I pray that You would do this today, that You'd fill me with Your Spirit, that that I might even worship before You as I deliver this sermon. And I pray that we would all worship as we hear, and we would receive the blessings that Your Word gives to us freely. By faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you have had the, I don't want to call it a privilege, I don't think. You've had the experience of coming to my house before, and you might have met my dog Jesco, who is somewhat crazy. He's not all there psychologically, right? But where that, where that comes most to the fore is I'll often take a walk out of my house and sometimes as soon as I leave the sight of this poor animal with his face in the looking at me, I can hear him start howling and barking and beside himself with sorrow. Um, now, I perceive the reason for that is really just because Jesco does not know, does not remember who I am and what I do on my day-to-day basis, right? Jesco assumes, I believe, I don't know, that I'm not coming back. I'm going to be gone for a long period of time, and he doesn't have the mental capacity to know that I'm going to return very, very soon. He doesn't understand me, and he doesn't understand my ways. He just knows that he wants to be with me. Now, 
As often as that's true of my dog, and I'm sure many of you that have pets, that's true, but we often do the same thing to God, don't we? Now, if me and my dog are apart and separated by intelligence to some degree, how much more infinitely are we separated from knowing our God truly as He is in His nature, in His principle, and in His being? We so often are tempted and we change the character of God in our minds to fit our own perception. But more than that, when we don't understand God in His ways, we often, like my dog, are given over to grief and sorrow because we just can't comprehend the ways of our invisible, immortal, and only wise God. But the beauty of our passage here today is that there are many things that we don't understand about how our Lord treats us often. There's many times where we just cannot comprehend how He deals with us, but we must wait on Him faithfully. We are called by the pages of Holy Scripture not to to pretend that God is how we want Him to be in our own minds, but rather we are to faithfully study the Scripture so that we would know our God And that we would wait for Him faithfully in times where like this Canaanite woman, He does not answer us when we desire for Him to answer us. This text, we have Jesus strongly approving the faith of this Gentile woman after she continues to plead with Him for her daughter. Now, The point that I'm hoping to drive forth in this sermon is that we must likewise, like this Canaanite woman, learn in our Christian lives to wait upon the Lord when He is absent from our senses, when He seems to be contrary to us. And I think that this text teaches us three ways in which we can do that. First, in our sermon today, I want us to learn and to know That to wait on the Lord, we must know God works in incomprehensible or mysterious ways. God works in ways that we don't understand. Secondly, to wait on the Lord faithfully, we must trust in His steadfast love to those who have faith in His Son. And to wait on the Lord, you must be striving to grow in that faith that this Canaanite woman was so approved of in our text. And so, today, I want us to look at this text and I want us to first see, to wait on the Lord, like this woman, you must know that God works in incomprehensible and sometimes mysterious ways. And the thing that brings that to our mind to the foremost as this woman is suffering that when Jesus responds to her by our own fleshly inclinations and fleshly wisdom, we might say it seems like the Lord makes the situation this woman was in worse. That's a strong way to say it, but I think that it demands we say it strongly. I think that we should first imagine the terrible condition that this woman was in. This woman is obviously a believer in the Lord. Jesus Christ commends her as having a great faith, not the little faith of Peter on the ocean in, or in the sea in chapter 14, or even the little faith of his disciples in chapter 16 that we will see. But this woman, a Canaanite woman, separated from the true community of God's worshiping people, she has a great faith. 
But she's in a terrible, terrible situation. Now, I know there's many young mothers and many mothers-to-be in this audience, and the congregation's a better word. I don't know. We know that the Bible talks about the compassionate love of His Father towards His children. But I think that in our common experience, when we think about heartfelt emotion and, and pathos of a woman towards her children, there's not a stronger bond on earth than a woman and her concern and care for the physical and spiritual well-being of her children. I think we can agree on that. I even think about my wife. that she, she's, We have this baby monitor that you can get on your phone and look, and she's constantly concerned with, is Charlotte actually sleeping at nap, nap time? Uh, is Charlotte eating enough? Well, me as a father, I'm like, well, she chose not to eat. So that's okay. And if she's upstairs in her room, she's being quiet. If she's sleeping or not, I'm really not that concerned about it. But my wife, with her motherly concern and care, she wants to know, is Charlotte getting enough sleep? Is she eating enough food? Now, how much, if that kind of turmoil causes regular, godly mothers to be in turmoil to some degree, how much turmoil should this woman be in? Think about what's going on in this situation. Notice how she describes her plight in verse 22. She comes out crying to our Lord, and she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So, Take that in stages, if you will. How much turmoil would a mother, or you mothers, how much turmoil would you be in if you knew that your daughter was being oppressed in any way, shape, or form by anybody? How much more would you be in turmoil if you knew that your daughter was oppressed not just by anybody, but by a wicked spiritual force of demonic activity? How much more? Would you be in turmoil if you could say that my daughter is not just oppressed, not just demonically oppressed, but severely oppressed by a demon? The word here, kakos in Greek, she's badly oppressed. Now, we don't know the manifestations of this, but it was certainly severe. This woman comes and cries to our Lord And as I try this week to put myself in her shoes, I I really honestly can't even imagine the turmoil that must have been in this woman's heart as she considered the condition of her daughter severely oppressed by a demonic force. I mean, think of that. The terror, the horror that her mind must have been in. The care. And her Savior. She calls Him the Son of David here. She, even though living in the the land of Tyre and Sidon knew enough of the Bible to know that Jesus Christ was not only Lord, but that He was Messiah. He was the Son of David to come. But Jesus seems, that word's important, seems to make it worse. Notice the interaction. This woman in verse 23, or in verse 22 rather, this Canaanite woman comes and notice what she's doing. It says that she came out and was crying. The first thing we should notice is that word. She's crying. She's not whispering to Christ. She's not merely just raising her hand hoping that He's going to recognize her. She's not talking in a normal voice. She is crodzo. She is crying out emotionally, loudly to our Savior. But more than that, the tense of this word 
is in the imperfect in Greek. And I know you're very excited about the grammar that we're pointing out, but it's important. That means that she was in a state of continually doing something in the past. Okay? She didn't cry out to him. She was crying. She was continually crying out and lifting up her voice. And this is even further um, strengthened by the fact that the disciples, they're really annoyed. Because why? She's following after us, right? This was a continual period of time. We don't know if it was minutes, hours, days. We have no idea. But this woman is following after our Savior and continually lifting up her voice and crying to the One who she knows to be the Messiah. And how does Christ respond? With, With deafening silence. Her cry, her screaming towards the Messiah is encountered with, Him not answering her a word. Not answering her a word. How strange would that have been to her? How strange is it for us to to see this if we continue? This, This resolution on our Savior's part, not even to answer this woman, is picked up by the disciples and they say to her, send her away for she's crying out after us. Now, When I first read this, I I took it to be that the disciples were saying, just dismiss her and get her out of here. But I don't think that's what's going on here. These 12 men, I think that they were probably capable enough if they wanted just to get her out of there to remove her. They wanted Jesus to answer her request. And we can see that from what follows. Because in verse 24, after the disciples say, send her away, Jesus responds to His disciples and says... I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So I hope you notice here that he is arguing with his disciples. I'm not going to answer her because I wasn't sent to her. Okay? This is amazing. Jesus gives this dismissive response even to his disciples' request that he answer her prayer. And we're going to get back to that. But this woman then, in response to that, doesn't just go away, doesn't give up, But she comes and kneels before Him and notice the humbleness of her petition. She just says, Lord, help me. And in response, Jesus gives one of the harshest divine statements to a believer that we read in at least most of the Bible. She said, or He said in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and and cast it to the dogs. Right? I mean, very clearly saying, you're, you're a dog, okay? And that, that is, in the Middle Eastern context, even a worse criticism than we might think of it today, right? Middle Eastern, I mean, especially in Jewish context, a dog is an unclean animal. If you come in contact with it, you're ceremonially unclean. And Jesus says here that to do this thing for you, would be to take children's bread. Imagine taking your food, your sandwich that your child has on its plate and throwing it to Jesco. Now, my daughter's done that on her own accord before, but it would be inappropriate for me to do it in anger, giving a dog something that is reserved for the children. Now, finally, at the end of this text, this woman answers very graciously and humbly to our Messiah, and then Jesus finally responds and says, great is your faith, and gives her her request. Now, the question that we have today is when we read through this, I think that we ought to consider it somewhat strange. 
that Jesus is dealing with this woman in this way. And we should ask, what are we to do with this text? Has Jesus, whom we've seen over and over in the book of Matthew, forgotten to be compassionate? As He's looked upon the crowds, and we've noted many times, He's moved it with compassion to those who don't even believe in Him. But this Canaanite woman, who has such great faith, are we to think that He'd forgotten to be compassionate that day? That He forgot to have His cup of coffee? And so it was kind of grumpy? Of course not. Are we to think, as some liberal scholars think, that Jesus really harbored racist tendencies towards this woman and had to be convinced to be compassionate to her? Absolutely not. God forbid that be the case. In fact, I'm going to hope and try to show you today that Jesus is behaving towards this woman, not in a totally strange way, but in a way that we see our merciful and compassionate God acting towards His people, even the holiest of His people in the Old Testament. Jesus is not just a grumpy man on a bad day. Rather, He is showing Himself to be the image of the invisible God in this text. Now, as we think about that, we're going to turn to a few passages. This woman comes to Christ with a severe problem and she is begging our Savior to answer her. And Jesus is silent. Now, if we were to pause and think of that, Have we ever read in the Scriptures where Jesus, or where God, is silent to His people coming to Him in problems? And I'd hope that our minds would be drawn to many passages, but the most potent of these are in the Psalms. Please turn with me to just a couple passages. Psalm chapter 10. And we could go through dozens of these in the Psalms. Dozens. But notice the language of David the man after God's own heart, one of the holiest men in all the Bible, notice what he says in verse 1 of Psalm 10. In prayer, David says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And this wasn't a one-off experience. Notice, just a couple pages later, or maybe one page later, in chapter 13 of the Psalms, notice David praying. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then notice verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my own Soul. That is, God, you're not answering our prayer. You're not giving me counsel. How often do I have to take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall the enemy be exalted over me? And there are many times we can go, and if you want to write these down, and I think I have them listed on the back of your thing. Um, in Psalm 27, 9, 69, 17, 102, 2, and 143, 7, David repeats the cry, Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Jesus Christ is not being harsh in this passage. Rather, He is acting even as God acted in the Old Testament. Many times, even to the holiest of men, David but maybe even more pungent, maybe that's potent to us, is Psalm 22, which records the life of Jesus Christ Himself. 
lest we think, well, David was a great sinner that killed a man and slept with a woman and bore her child and lied to the nation. Notice what's recorded of our Savior in Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. As He's on the cross, He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so, notice, far from saving Me from the words of My groaning? Verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. Now while we might read this passage and from our own human experience think it's strange that Christ acts this way, we should at least notice that Jesus as the image of the invisible God is acting consistently with how His Father behaved throughout all the Old Testament towards some of His saints that were in trouble. So, we ought to know that God works in these mysterious ways, but what about the hostility of Christ, right? We, we have not only silence from Jesus, but it seems like He's even openly hostile towards this woman in certain ways. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you, <coughs> you're texting somebody about something and they don't respond for a long period of time, right? Especially if you're texting something that might be a little bit, uh, cause a little tension in the relationship. Now that silence can be interpreted, well, maybe they forgot to text me back or whatever it might be. But if they text back in open hostility, there's really not a whole lot of question left. And likewise here, we see Jesus Christ's antagonism towards this woman. I'm not sent to you. I'm sent to the children of Israel. And I'm certainly not going to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. But again, as we think about how God behaved even towards the holiest of men and women in the Old Testament, I think that we can come up with a number of examples where God not only was silent, but sometimes seemed actually against the saints of God. What examples can we think of? Well, perhaps we can think of what Brother Joey read this morning in Genesis chapter 32. That is, Jacob was getting ready to cross the brook Jabbok to meet his brother Esau, and he is in absolute terrifying anxiety about meeting his brother that the last time he saw him wanted to kill him. Okay? How did God react to him? He wrestles with him until the breaking of day. He seems to be in battle with Jacob almost to the point where Jacob has to refuse to quit the battle and he says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. What about Moses in Exodus chapter 32? As the people of Israel had sinned this great sin against God, do you remember what God says to Moses? In Exodus chapter 32, notice this in verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, what does He say to Moses? Let them alone, that My wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Right? God seems contrary to the people of Israel in this instant. But we know He did not consume them. And we might even think of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3, where Jonah goes through and preaches that 
that really short sermon that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, right? God seemed against the Ninevites, but they respond by saying, let's repent of our sins that perhaps God will be gracious. And what I want to highlight and underline for you, if we read through this passage and we think it's strange that Jesus acts this way, it's because He's behaving like God the Father acted in the Old Testament. And I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, if you're honest, hasn't this been your experience from time to time in the Christian life where you're going through a very difficult problem, a very difficult circumstance, and it doesn't seem as if you're getting any answers in your prayers? You're not getting the wisdom that you're asking for in the moment that you want it. You're not getting that answer, that job, that reconciled relationship. And sometimes it even seems that through providence, that God might even be against your godly prayers. This is common in the Christian life. The Lord often operates in ways that are confusing and contrary to our thinking, but much more than my dog, Jesco, we often misinterpret these things to think that God really is against us. He's really not for us. He doesn't answer my prayers either because He doesn't exist or because He hates me. But this text ought to forever prove not that proposal, but the opposite to us. I would propose to you today that if we are going to wait on the Lord and have the great faith that this Canaanite woman had, we must too know that the, word, the Lord works in incomprehensible and mysterious ways so that we do not give up when we enter these situations. So, God works in mysterious ways, but that knowledge in and of itself is not sufficient for us, is it? I mean, the Greek gods, right? They, they, they worked in mysterious ways because they were psychotic, right? Because they were just a little better than us, but more evil, right? We didn't understand them because they were ununderstandable, irrational, and wicked. But the Lord is not that way, right? The, the ways of the Lord are incomprehensible to us, but we can know from the testimony of Holy Scripture that to wait on the Lord, we must not only know His ways are incomprehensible, but that His ways are always in steadfast love toward those who fear Him. To wait on the Lord, you must trust, believe in God's steadfast love. And that's because He desires better for you than you desire for yourself. Do you realize that? Now, at first, when we're reading through this text, not only are we mystified by how Jesus deals with this woman, but we might be mystified by the fact that the disciples seem to be more gracious towards this woman than even our Lord is towards this woman, right? They, they want him to just heal this woman. We've seen you heal Gentiles before, like the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Just heal this woman and get her out of the way. But it's pretty obvious in the text, isn't it? These disciples aren't moved by compassion. They're moved because this woman's annoying them. She's after him, right? And so the seeming compassion of the, this, these disciples kind of falls on its face. And I, I just have to ask, this might be a painful question, it is for me, how often do we do the same thing, right? How often do you think, well, 
the church seems more compassionate than our Lord because we're praying and hoping for these things. And how often can we maybe pray for the salvation of that family member that we see often? But the motivation, like the disciples, isn't for the good of that person sometimes, but maybe it's so that we have a a better Thanksgiving together. Right? Maybe we're praying for that brother or sister in the church to grow in, in trust and grace in the Lord, but our motivation isn't necessarily that they would experience the fruit of salvation and joy and peace, but so that we wouldn't have to clean up the mess afterward. Perhaps we pray for our families to grow in grace so that we wouldn't be embarrassed in front of the church family when we sin so openly in front of everybody. Our motivations and our prayers, they might seem pious, but like the disciples, often they can have these ugly motivations behind them. But we ought to praise God that our Savior does not have the shallow and selfish reflex that we often have in our hearts. What am I getting at? Christ in this passage, rather than giving an easy answer to prayer to get this woman just off of her back so that he wouldn't have to hear her cries, he patiently and compassionately deals with her. That through his silence and even through what seems like his animosity towards her, he is guiding her to greater holiness and teaching his disciples what true compassion really means. Now, working at the city mission... Me and Brother Joey, both working there at some point in the past, we, we have experience with people coming in contact with homeless people that, that want to do something good, but something that really, in the long run, doesn't help the person, right? I remember a, a very clear case where the director of the city mission was out getting gas at the gas station, and a homeless man approaches him and asks him, hey, uh, we ran out of gas um, and we don't have anywhere to go, we don't have any food, can you, can you help us with that? And he, instead of giving him a $20 bill and telling him to be on his way, he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you come to the mission, we can get you a gas card, we can get you food for the night. He said, no, we don't, we don't do that. We don't, we don't go to homeless shelters, right? How often we had told people, instead of when you're approached by somebody on the street asking for money, ask them what their problem is. Take the time to say, well, I'd love to come and take a look at your car. I've got a gas can. I'll go fill it up and bring it to your car. You might have a conversation with them about the Lord, or you might be able to do something for them of lasting benefit. Now, the same thing is true with our Savior in this passage. He does not seek to be stingy and just to get this woman out of His way, but rather He wants to do her true good. He does to her, as Hebrews 12 says, He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. With this woman and with us, God often takes His time with us. Instead of giving us the obvious answer that we think we need right in the moment, He guides us along so that we will grow in holiness and that we'd have something better than we can even conceive that we need in ourselves. We want easy answers, don't we? Always we want easy answers, right? We might be able to say on Sunday and sing with our hearts it is well with our soul, even when sea billows roll. But when those sea billows start rolling, I know very few people that in that moment say, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering me? And start to panic. 
We want easy answers, but God desires true holiness. We want comfort and ease, but God makes sure that all circumstances in our life are here to conform us to the image of His beloved Son. And so, we must realize, we must wait upon the Lord, trust in His steadfast love, because He desires better for us than we want for ourselves. But also, we must know His love in order to wait on Him. We must be convinced that He loves those who love Him. This woman in our passage, I'm I'm convinced as I thought about it, that she knows something of God's steadfast love. She knows something of it. Notice how she reacts to to our Savior here. When, When He says the most offensive thing to her, that it's not right for the children's bread to be taken and thrown to the dogs. Notice how, how she reacts. She doesn't just get offended and, and run away thinking that he's really this harsh master. She doesn't try to win him back by her good works. But rather, she agrees with him, doesn't she? She says, yes, Lord, I agree. that The time for... the the Gospel to be opened up and the door swung wide open for all Gentiles to be brought into the church. The time for Satan to be bound so that he would not deceive the nations anymore has not happened yet. I agree with you, Lord, she says. But what else does she say? These dogs, they they eat the crumbs that fall from the Master's table, don't they? That we could read throughout the Old Testament and the New that there are many times when Gentiles outside of the Jewish covenant community have experienced the overflowing blessings of God. We think of Naaman being healed by Elisha. We think of the woman from Tyre and Sidon by Elijah who he lodged with. He says, Lord, I know that these things are true. But your steadfast love has often flowed to other individuals from other nations. She continues. She she argues with him in some degree. It's her knowledge of God's overflowing love to all creation that preserves her. And it allows her to wait on the Lord in this time of trial. And notice how willing Jesus Christ is to be persuaded away from His supposed antagonism. How, How lovely it is for Him to for her to argue His own steadfast love with Him. Isn't that the truth in our prayers? When we read through the Psalms, we read through Psalm 10 and Psalm 13 about how, God, where are You? Why aren't You answering me? But halfway through the Psalm, He says, Oh Lord, You you do love me. You've answered me in times past and You will answer me again. The Lord delights in us going to Him and arguing with Him His steadfast love to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And if this woman had such a confidence in God's steadfast love that overflows to Gentiles in the Old Testament and in the New, how much more confidence should we have that have the full revelation of Jesus Christ given to us in the Gospel? That's a, that's a good question for us, isn't it? She had this limited amount of information to deal with and even a seeming antagonism that the time hasn't even come for the Gentiles to experience these blessings. But for you and me, 
Jesus Christ has died on the cross, risen again, sent out His apostles to every kingdom under heaven and promised to us that if we believe in His Son, we have all the blessings of the new covenant freely and fully given to us. How much more should our confidence be in His steadfast love regardless of what our sensory organs would tell us? We have to be convinced of God's love for us if we're going to wait in trial. And some of you aren't convinced of it. And it's not because you're too sinful to be convinced of it. It's because you've convinced yourself that God could not love you in your present state. But I'll tell you today that God's love is open to all and every kind of sinner and it is most displayed for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. He did not ask us to repent and become better first before He came and died for us. But as Romans chapter 5 tells us, while we were enemies, God gave His only Son. While we were antagonists to Him and His kingdom, He came and willingly died for us and shed His blood. And if you can't look at the cross of Christ and realize that God's love perseveres to those who believe in Him, then brothers and sisters, you're really just living in unbelief. You're not believing the truth and the grace and the wonder that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. If we know this love that He has had for us on the cross, we ought to be able to say with Paul, if He gave His only begotten Son for us, how will He not also freely with Him give us all things? All things. His love... The same love that crucified our Savior, the same love that raised Him from the dead, brings us into trial and hardship that we might grow to trust His love for us. He, God is the one that allowed this demon to possess this young girl. You realize that, right? God's love was the one that held the tongue of our Savior from answering God's love is the one that gave her a seemingly harsh response, but all of that was so that she would grow in her trust because it's better than her daughter being healed right at that moment. He does this so that we might have better things than just the fleeting pleasures of life given to us. He does it so that we might say with David in Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? that I might learn your statutes. See what David's saying? That God's Word is so wonderful, it's like gold that doesn't perish, that it's better for me to be afflicted and get gold than to be unafflicted and be without it. Or that we might have the testimony of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 8-10. through 10. Please turn with me there. It's a wonderful passage. And again, my point is that if we're going to wait on the Lord in times of trial where He seems silent to us, we have to know God's love. We have to trust that He's doing it for our good and for a reason. Notice the Apostle Paul's testimony. If there's any man that knew God's presence, it was Paul. But notice this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, notice that word, utterly, burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, notice, but that 
was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us on Him. We have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Paul recognizes here that all of that utter suffering that he went through, it was for a purpose that he would trust in God who raises the dead. And that's a better thing. Or that we might say with James, the very well-known passage, chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Is God not answering your prayers causing you to to have your faith tested? The Word of God says that's what you should expect. And it's for your growth. God acts in ways that we do not always understand. And He has unfailing steadfast love to all who entrust themselves to them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay. But these are not one-time experiences. I I hope we realize that. To say that, oh, I've seen somewhere in the Scripture, and the Scripture is put together, that God works in ways we don't understand. I've seen that He has steadfast love for us, that He brings us through trials. But this isn't something that I can just preach in a sermon, and you go on your way, and now you can say, well, I have the data in my mind, and everything will be okay. If we're to have the great faith that this woman showed... We must be striving to grow in that faith. Must be striving to grow in that faith. How amazing it is that Jesus Christ, after acting this way towards this woman, ends up to her in full love and says, Woman, great is your faith. I can hardly imagine such a thing being said about me, to be honest with you. I can't. I can't imagine it being said... Caleb, great is your faith. But this woman has this said of her because of her persevering, waiting on God even when it seemed hard and inconceivable. And I want us to see first and foremost, if we are going to be striving to grow in faith, we have to realize that faith is the root of all grace. Faith is the root of all grace in this life. That is, we grow in all of our love, all of the fruit of the Spirit, all of our patience and steadfastness and hope because we believe in Jesus Christ. All this fruit comes from faith. All of it comes from faith. Now, I am not saying that faith is the greatest of all graces because it isn't. We see in 1 Corinthians 13.13, now, Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. But love cannot grow, cannot exist, true biblical love, without faith. Without faith. This faith is the means by which we grow in true love. When we look at the cross and we see the love that God had for us, that we did not love Him first, but He loved us first, we grow in grace. We grow in grace. We have to realize that faith is so important to us that we would be barren, dead trees no matter all of our good works that are seen in the eyes of men. We'd be dead in the sight of God if we didn't have faith. Being connected to that root and that sap of love that is in Jesus Christ. Faith is the open hand that receives all of God's benefits. It receives growth and sanctification. And secondly, lastly... We must not only realize that faith is the root of all grace, but that we must give our time 
to grow in faith. I think some of you have, have said to me that faith is a, not a thermostat, it's a thermometer. I think it's opposite. Anyway, faith doesn't automatically kick on for us in times of trial. We have to prepare ourselves and grow ourselves in faith and intentionally entrust ourselves to God in times of trial. And that can only happen if we give ourselves consistently to trying to grow in our our trust of God. The hard part of this is that we have, and we know that we have, I hope you know that you have, divided hearts today. That we, as Christians, sympathize with the man in Mark 9.24, don't we? They said, I believe, help my unbelief. So first, we ought to be confessing and praying. If we find ourselves in a situation, in a trial, and we're panicking inside, we're having the opposite of faith, we ought to, like this man, say, Lord, I believe Your Gospel, but I'm in a state where I don't fully believe Your promises. Please, Lord, help my unbelief. We ought to be in the habit of confessing our unbelief to God and praying about it rather than being confessed complacent. Well, it's just the way I am. I don't have a fully believing heart. Oh well. That's a state we can be in. But we ought to fight that. And we ought to think on Christ. I'd ask you today, do do you give time? We read in Psalm 145 that the marvelous works of the Lord are something that He meditates on. We read of the righteous man in Psalm 1 that on the law of God He meditates day and night. We're we're in a, a culture where I can listen to sermons and podcasts and read books all day long if I choose to. I can pump my mind full of knowledge. But do we ever give ourselves to the biblical discipline of just meditation? Where we have silent moments where we can just think about the love of Christ. Think about the law of God. Meditate on those things and grow in our thoughts. I tell you, I think it's a, a neglected discipline in, in my life, and I think in all of our lives, we ought to be thinking on Jesus Christ to grow in faith, meditating on His goodness, thinking on the promises of God. And we ought to set apart some time for those things. Whether it's five minutes before bed, right? I'm not trying to put a law on you here, a rigid structure, but do you think about the Lord? Do you let your heart well up with spiritual thoughts about the Messiah? This is how we grow in faith. We abide in Christ. And so, in conclusion today, I believe this passage primarily, while it points to the Gentile inclusion, while it points to a whole bunch of different things, we we have to see here, I think, that the faith of this woman is exalted before us so that we would learn in part how to wait on the in times of trial, in times of silence, in times of hardship and animosity, and we wait on the Lord by three things. That we would know that God often works in ways that are incomprehensible to us. And if we find ourselves in a situation where God isn't answering us, we shouldn't just give up, but realize that God often wants to draw us out to have greater faith, to press further into Him. Secondly, we ought to trust in His steadfast Love, knowing that God loves us, clinging to the gospel and saying, God, I believe that your son died for my sins. I trust my whole soul and life to him. And so no matter if you're answering my prayers right now, I trust you. I trust that you love me because of the gospel. And then thirdly and lastly, we have to be striving to grow in this. 
We have to give time to it. We have to engage in it daily if we're going to wait on the Lord when trial really comes. And so, part of the way, part of the means that God has given us is obviously His Word, but also the sacrament. This visible sermon. This sermon that's been placed in front of our eyes by Jesus Christ, excuse me, that we, we engage in every week. That... We read in 1 Corinthians that as often as we partake of this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. This sacrament is given in part that we would wait. That we know something glorious and blessed is coming. The second coming of Christ is going to happen. But until then, the Lord's Supper calls us to know that we are eating this sacramental meal trusting in His death and resurrection, and we're waiting for the time that He's going to come again.